Well, this morning, we are continuing our series in the book of Philippians. Last message was an introduction to the whole letter. If you missed it, it is available online for review. I mentioned that there are a number of different themes that show up in this letter. Joy, partnership, unity, the gospel, and the fruit of the gospel. A number of commentators have also described this as a letter of friendship. Friendship was just as significant to the people in Paul's day as it is in ours. However, the way those friendships were maintained was drastically different. Whereas we have the ability to converse on some level with friends in a matter of minutes or seconds around the globe even, in Paul's day it was much more labor-intensive. Letter writing was a hallmark of long-distance relationships, long-distance friendships. Thus, those friendships that were long-distance tended to be significant as you wouldn't likely waste your time writing and waiting for a letter to come back to you if the relationship wasn't all that important. Some have noted that there were, in fact, formal instruction in antiquity given on the subject of letter writing. It was that important. There were also manuals on the subject for those who wanted to sharpen their skills in writing different kinds of addresses, whether it be to family members, friends, or other more formal addresses. But friendship was so significant in antiquity that it was often also the source of philosophical discussion. Philosophers such as Aristotle, Cicero, Plutarch, Seneca were among some of the philosophers who wrote extensively on the subject. Aristotle identified three different kinds of friendship between equals. Those who are equals would be in contrast to those who are unequal, um, such as in the case of a parent-child relationship or others who have different levels of honor given to them or different roles. But in terms of those equals, those friendships, those garnered probably the most discussion out of all the different kinds. And these uh, particular discussions that were given um, were most frequently given to the kinds of friendships described as two people whose relationship was based on goodwill and loyalty. In the context of this kind of friendship, there are certain kinds of uh, certain core ideals that apply to each, things like, again, loyalty, affection, mutual goodwill towards the other, some type of giving and receiving kind of relationship, and other such matters. Well, while the philosophical discussions concerning friendship and antiquity have explored many different aspects, many different ideals in their applications, I think by and large these concepts are not so foreign to us. I think I can speak for most of us when I say that I appreciate loyal friendship. I appreciate a friend who has mutual affection for me. It's not just one-sided. I appreciate someone who's concerned with my well-being and is happily, happy to freely give and freely receive from me. Some of my best friends over the year are, in fact, geographically very far from me today. And yet I know that if it depended on them and I was in need, they would be quick to help. It is in our nature to value good friendships, to attempt to foster good friendships whenever we can, and to endeavor to keep those good friendships no matter how far we are apart in life. Good friends are truly hard to find. Well, Paul knew that. And I think that it is indeed fitting to think of the letter to Philippians as a letter of friendship. As we discussed the last time, this church had become very dear to Paul for a number of reasons. In the course of his travels to preach the gospel, 
Paul, at this time that he wrote the letter, found himself in prison, removed from this group of believers. But having heard of some difficulties that they were facing, both from within and from without, he endeavored to write them to encourage them in the grace of God. Our section of focus for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. There we will see, as we commonly do in Paul's letter, his prayer for this church. This prayer of all of Paul's prayers is intensely personal, dripping with affection and a longing for the grace of God to continue in their lives. In short, this prayer, this prayer within this letter reflects Paul's prayer for friends. He prays to thank God for the joy of their friendship, and he prays to ask God for growth of their faith. That's the outline that we're going to follow for this passage. In verses 3 through 8, Paul thanks God for the joy of their friendship. In verses 9 through 11, he asks God for growth in their faith. Let's take a look at that passage together, and then we'll pray, and we'll look a little more closely. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would indeed be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, before we get into those main points, consider again for a moment that this is Paul's prayer for his friends. As I mentioned, we've talked many times before, prayer was important to Paul. He has made a habit of praying for all of the churches that he has interacted with. If you look at the letters to Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, Thessalonica, and of course here, you'll see a prayer embedded in each of those letters for the congregation. And those are just the letters that we have inspired text for. Certainly this was in part driven by what he refers to in 2 Corinthians 11 as the daily pressure on him of his anxiety for all the churches. He said, who is weak when I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? You know, if we have any burden for our local assembly, for the church here at Catonsville Baptist Church, think of the burden that Paul had for all of the people that he knew, all of the areas that he visited, all of the issues and concerns that they were dealing with at the time. He said, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And I can understand this to a degree as I've had, to a degree, as I've had the opportunity to preach 
at a number of different churches over the years as pulpit supply through various connections. I just had one pastor from a, preach, a church that I preached at probably, it's been over four years now, I think, not since we've been here. So it's been over four years, maybe five years ago. Uh, just reached out in an email just to check on us to see how we were doing. Um, this dear brother and his family uh, were have been a tremendous encouragement to us just in ministry in general. And um, I'm grateful for that friendship that we have with them, even though, again, we only visited with them maybe a handful of times, a small handful of times, um, and, and were able to share in ministry there in their church. But things like that are encouraging. And while I have prayed for them, when I've thought about them and others that we've had the opportunity to meet, I certainly don't have a daily concern for all of those churches. I don't have any idea what that's like. But Paul did. And that daily concern, he turned to prayer. I think that's significant. He was committed, again, to praying for churches. And it's clear through his teaching that he was committed to prayer as a general rule for the Christian life. In fact, he'll remind the church at Philippi of the importance of prayer in chapter 4. Of course, we see this commitment in other writings. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says very simply, pray without ceasing. In both Romans 12.2 and Colossians 4.2, he says, be devoted to prayer. And in Ephesians 6.18, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray without ceasing. Be devoted to prayer. Pray in every way at all times with all perseverance for the saints. Do you think that Paul was passionate about prayer? think he had prayer on his mind? That this was perhaps one of those core ideals for him as he thought about his relationship with others? But it was a little bit more than that for Paul. Prayer was so significant to Paul, such an important part of his life as a believer, that he felt compelled to include those whom he cared about the most in prayer. And I think of all the motivations for prayer, of course, we're commanded to pray. But of all the motivations to prayer, I think one of the most significant that we can take away from Paul's example here is that we ought to pray fervently for those whom we love the most. If you love them and you know that prayer is so significant, you should be praying fervently. I wonder, do you? Those whom you care for, those for whom you are most concerned, those who have the greatest need, do you carry them to the Lord in prayer? Are they that important to you? Or do you reserve prayer only for yourself and for your needs? One author said this, it's kind of a long quote, but bear with me. Prayer is a compulsion for the spiritually mature Christian. Fervent prayer does not arise from a mere sense of duty, but from a deep inner desire. It does not flow from external requirement, but from internal passion. The deepest longings of the spirit-filled heart for the honor of God and the blessing of men find their natural expression in prayer. The measure of a person's spiritual maturity is not how well he or she conforms externally to the command to pray. The issue is how internally constrained that person is to pray by a strong love for God and others. Listen to this. The truest longings of the heart will come out in prayer. A selfish and superficial heart focused primarily on personal problems, struggles, and interests will produce selfish and superficial prayers. A heart focused on the glory of the Lord and his people will produce prayers focused on God's glory and others' needs. I like that. 
Well, we all know our families have needs. The church family has needs, not just physical needs, but deep spiritual needs. And we have access to the throne room of the sovereign ruler of the universe. Jesus gives us that access. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews is envisioning prayer here as us drawing near to the throne of grace. He calls the throne of God the throne of grace. Where does grace come from? It comes from God. Where can we seek grace? At his throne. How do we get to his throne? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And he says we can draw near with confidence, with boldness, to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's prayer. We're just saying all praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. Since that is true, we ought to be committed to taking our loved ones to the Lord in prayer. Back to our text again. This is Paul's prayer for his friends. So what does he pray? Again, those two things. He prays to thank God for the joy of their friendship, and he prays to ask God for the growth of their faith. Let's look at that first point, that he prays to thank God for the joy of their friendship. Look again at verses 3 through 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. How would you like to be the subject of that verse? I thank God when I think of you. That is indicative of true friendship. When the very thought of you prompts someone to thank God. And this is not just a one-time thing. They didn't just do something nice for him one time that moved him to thank God for them one time. He says, always in every prayer of mine for you. He thanks God for them every time he prays for them. Every time he bows his knee to mention them before God, he is thankful for them. Furthermore, he says, I'm making my prayer with joy. The thought of this group of believers, his friends, moves him to thank God, and it overflows into joy. Joy is perhaps one of the most underrated and underconsidered gifts of the Spirit. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit we read in Galatians chapter 5. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And he goes on from there. The point of that passage, again, is that the Spirit bears these things in the life of the believer. 
one who has a spirit ought to bear these fruit. We ought to see those fruit present in their lives. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. He said that speaking of the conduct of the Pharisees. We know an apple tree because it bears apples, right? We know a pear tree because it bears pears. If it didn't bear fruit, either it wouldn't be a fruit tree or it would be dead or somehow dysfunctional. If you are lacking joy, for example, it may be that you actually don't have the Spirit of God within you. Because the Spirit bears this kind of fruit. And the Spirit doesn't fail. That is what the Spirit does. That is a part of his operation in the life of a believer. Now, perhaps that fruit isn't always, at all times, at every moment, visible. We do have our moments. We have our times when we struggle with joy. And sometimes we have to fight for joy. But the general condition and general characterization of the life of a believer ought to include fruit born from the Spirit, of which joy is an integral part. But again, what is joy? I think that over the course of our study in Philippians, we'll get a clearer picture of what joy is. Paul mentions joy some 14 times in this passage, in this book. But I'll provide you with a definition to get us started, as this is our first occurrence. Now, a word always means what it means in its context and generally by its usage. I would distinguish biblical joy from the more common way that joy is used in everyday conversation. The way we tend to talk about joy is more akin to the way we think about happiness. Happiness is more often an emotional response to favorable circumstances. Biblical joy is different. I think that if we were to survey the Bible to understand what joy is, it would be defined something like this. Biblical joy is the work of the Spirit, which causes us to delight in God and in the things of God. It's a God-focused, God-sourced, and God-sustained joy. It is a stirring of the affections toward God and others and his affairs. Does that make sense? The work of the Spirit that causes us to delight in God and in the things of God. And the things of God meaning his, his work, his people, his purposes. This is why Paul will say later, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He can say that we should always rejoice in the Lord in spite of circumstances, precisely because biblical joy is not based on external circumstances. Biblical joy is grounded in who God is and the good that God does, and these things never change. Who God is and the good that God does are truths that are always available as an eternal spring from which the believer may drink deeply to satisfy and invigorate the soul. I wonder, do you have joy in your life? Perhaps more to the point of this passage, Have you experienced the joy of the Lord in your relationships with others? Do you have for friends the kind of people for whom you are compelled to thank God and about whom you rejoice in God? If not, then what kind of people are you surrounding yourself with? Perhaps a better question is, are you that kind of friend to someone else? I think we all want those kinds of friends, but being that kind of friend to someone else is a whole other matter. We'll get to flesh that out more as we continue through Philippians. While Paul is thankful for this dear church, he gives thanks to God for them and he remembers them with joy. But why? Look back at verse 5. He says, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. 
He calls it their participation in the gospel. The word for participation is the same word that we generally translate as fellowship. Fellowship connotes more than a casual one-time occurrence. There is engagement, involvement, a sharing, a participation. In other words, they were not casual observers in Paul's life. They were not armchair quarterbacks. They're not simply mail out a check and give no concern for what happened once it left their bank account. They did give, but then they followed up with a letter to see how he was doing. They sent one of their own to be with Paul and to present their gift because they were concerned to know how Paul was doing. They stood with him when other churches didn't. He mentions in chapter 4 that when he left the region of Macedonia, no church shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving but them, but the church at Philippi. And again, we know from this letter, or we know from the letter to the church at Corinth, that not only did they give to help support Paul multiple times, time and time again, but they also gave to support the poor believers in Jerusalem. So they were, they were engaged. They participated. They were involved. And again, this took a great deal of effort and sacrifice. Again, as I mentioned earlier, people wouldn't take the time to write a letter and maintain a long-distance relationship if, unless it was truly worth it. To them, Paul and his ministry were worth it. It was worth it because of the kind of ministry that Paul had. Again, he says it is their partnership in the gospel, meaning in the gospel ministry of Paul, the preaching of the gospel, the good news, the message of salvation. Or what did Paul say about the message of salvation in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 and 4? He says, They are delivered to you what was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the essence of the gospel message. It took on different forms as Paul went about preaching in, in various regions, but that's the essence of the gospel truth. More can be said, but certainly not less. Christ died for our sins, he died a substitutionary death. He died for our sins. We have sins. We are the sinners. We have broken God's law. But Jesus died as a substitute for us. He bore the wrath of God for us. And now God's wrath is satisfied. And not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he also rose again from the dead. And that's all according to the scriptures. He didn't stay dead. His sacrifice was accepted to God. By God, And just as he said he would, he rose again on the third day. And he rose again and he appeared to many. And all of this again was in accordance with the scriptures. God predetermined that this would happen beforehand. This is a part of God's plan for redemption. This is the big picture of what God is doing in the world. He is working to save souls, to redeem people. This is the gospel. This is the gospel by which men are saved. This was the gospel by which the church at Philippi were saved. The ministry of the gospel, this good news, was significant enough, important enough for them to want to be a part of it going forward. They were so affected by the gospel that they wanted to continue to participate in the ministry of the gospel as it went forward. They made every effort to participate in Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Listen to what it says in verse 7. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And again in chapter 4, verse 15, you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, 
When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. And I already mentioned that they sent Epaphroditus who brought this last gift to him. They sent someone from their number to see Paul, to physically see him. Again, maintaining, trying to maintain and establish this long-distance relationship with Paul because they were so committed to his ministry. Paul says, you are all partakers. You were involved, engaged. You were also committed to the gospel ministry, to the preaching of the gospel. That is the thing that motivated both Paul and the Philippians. And their common goal of seeing the gospel go forth resulted in their hearts being knit together. Listen to the emotive language in these opening words of Paul's letter. Look again, chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4, making my prayer with joy. Verse 7, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's almost gushing over them in this letter. And looking at, look back at verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I can almost see Paul bubbling over with joy over these dear believers. I'm so filled with joy for you, he says. I know that God is at work in you because I've experienced it from you. And knowing that he is at work in you, knowing that there is fruit from the gospel message in your lives makes me confident that God will continue to work. And he will hold you until the end. That is friendship. That is sincere, heartfelt affection forged in the crucible of a common pursuit to see that the gospel went forth. I like this story that I read from one of the um, commentaries on this passage. It says, when theologian Broxton, Broughton Knox was serving as a young chaplain in the British Navy, on a ship preparing for D-Day and the invasion of Normandy, he noted that the minds of all hands on board, regardless of rank, were focused on the invasion's success. No one thought of his own interests, but only of how he could help his shipmates in their commonly shared task. He says, I remember noting in my mind how I'd never been happier. After the invasion and return to England, everyone noticed a difference in the atmosphere on the ship. It was still friendly because it was a well-run ship, but several of the sailors, sensing the difference, Ask the young chaplain why things had changed. And Knox reflects, the answer is quite simple. During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. Once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. And he says that Broughton Knox was, of course, reflecting on his ship's experience and the fellowship that people experience in pursuing a common goal. Perhaps you've been there, not necessarily on the battlefield, perhaps at work, focused on some special project with peers, perhaps in a team sport or some other pursuit. You built camaraderie with other folks you were involved with. You may not have known them well. In some cases, you may not see them much outside of that context. But when focused and engaged, intent on one purpose, one pursuit, there's a beauty to the connection that you make with people. My first two missions trips outside of the U.S. were with people I'd never met before in my life. And I am an introvert, so that was terrifying to me. But by about the third day into that experience, on both times, two completely different places, 
Two completely different groups of people I'd never met before in my life until I stepped foot on foreign soil. We were like friends for years because we had a common pursuit. We had a common goal. We were focused on one thing, on the gospel. And God knit our hearts together for that time. You may be thinking, yeah, that was good for the Apostle Paul. Maybe it's good for Pastor Rod on his missions trips years ago. But that will likely not happen for me. But I think that's exactly the point of this text, though. And that's what Paul is getting at. Paul hadn't grown up in Philippi. He wasn't from that region. But he knew Jesus. And he shared Jesus with the people there. And they were convinced of the gospel ministry as it so impacted their hearts. And so they decided to partner together. And it knit their hearts together. And that's how this friendship was born. So yes, you can have those kinds of friendships within the walls of the church. But it all has to do with whether or not you pursue the gospel ministry with others. Let me ask you, when you come to church, when you engage, interact with others in the body of Christ, is that your goal? Is that your pursuit? Are you encouraging others to pursue that with you, to pursue the gospel? Do you come to see that the gospel goes forth Sunday after Sunday? Do you serve in such a way to see that the gospel goes forth? Do you pray in such a way that God will work through our congregation for the gospel to go forth? Is that a point of prayer for you regularly, often? Or when you come, are you only concerned about yourself, what you will get? What message will satisfy your particular felt need for the week? Who will ask you just the right question? Who will come over and speak to you? Because certainly you shouldn't be expected to reach out to anyone else. There's joy to be had with one another. There's thanksgiving to be offered to one another. Deeper and more satisfying relationships to be had with one another in the body of Christ as we come together with one mind and one heart to pursue the spread of the gospel in Catonsville, Maryland. And this we may have no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Remember that Paul wrote this while he was sitting in prison, beloved. And yet he was able to rejoice in the Lord over this dear group of believers because they had become his dear friends, because they were pursuing the same thing. Beloved, pray that the Lord would make you that kind of friend among the brethren at Catonsville Baptist. And that we would indeed together pursue the spread of the gospel for the glory of Christ. As we move on in the text, that is essentially what Paul does next in the remaining verses. We can see that he prays for his friends. Again, in verses 3 through 8, he prays to thank God for the joy of their fellowship. And in these last three verses, 9 through 11, he prays to ask God for the growth of their faith. He says in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says, This is my prayer. I'm so grateful for my friends. I think of them with joy. We've partnered together in the gospel ministry. I have them in my heart, and I yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. They are so significant, so important. The best thing that I can do for them now, particularly since I am so far removed from them, is to pray for them. And this is what I pray. This is a summary of these three verses, that their love would grow 
for one another, that it would be grounded in truth so that they may live in a way that honors Christ and the glory of God. He says, if I were to pray for my friends, if I were to desire something for them, this is what I desire for them, that their love would grow grounded in truth so that they may live in a way that honors Christ and bear fruit for the glory of God. Look again at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Now it is clear that the love of God is at work in their lives. Paul is attested to it as he has recounted their, his relationship with them. They're partnering with him in the gospel ministry. But as their friend, he's not content with them maintaining the status quo. He desires more for them. And clearly they were having some issues, issues of unity within the congregation, issues of persecution from without. Paul will address these in the remainder of the letter. For this reason also, he desires more for them. He prays that their love abounds more and more, that it increases, that it grows. One writer noted that Paul doesn't here specify the object of their love, whether it be their love for God or their love for one another. And in one sense, it really doesn't matter because they're connected. Our love for God fuels our love for one another, in other words. John gets to this in his first letter in chapter 4 in a number of different places in chapter 4 he says beloved let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love and again he says whoever loves God must love his brother also and again everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him And finally, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You cannot have one without the other. You can't say that you love God and not love your brother. Conversely, if you love God, if you have been affected by the love of God, then you ought to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. on the one hand, we really don't have to pray that we would be able to love one another. The Spirit helps us to do that. Again, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the first thing that's mentioned in that list. But what Paul prays here is not just that they would love, but that their love would abound and increase, that it wouldn't stay at a basic level, but that it would grow and flourish, that they would find more and more ways and opportunities to show the love of God for his glory and the good of those around him. He says back in our text that their love would abound with knowledge and all discernment, meaning that our love is fueled by truth. The more we know about God and are grounded in his truth, the more our love will abound. Knowledge and discernment are often paired together in Paul's writings. And we see that in a number of places, in particular in a number of places where Paul is praying for the church. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Colossians 1.9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Philemon, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. A growing knowledge of God leads to discernment, wisdom, and understanding. Growing to know God better leads to wisdom, 
discernment, the ability to know right and wrong, the ability to think rightly about ourselves and others, the ability to put others before our own selves at any given moment, to put their interests above our own. In verse 10, Paul says that this enables us to approve the things that are excellent. Knowing God better leads to wisdom, which leads the ability, again, to know what is right in terms of our relationship with one another and to do what is right in an increasing manner. He says, Lord, I pray that their love abounds, that it abounds, grounded in truth, that this truth leads to discernment. This discernment helps them to know what is good and right to do, and in context, that they would be able to do what is good and right in an increasing way, that they'd be able to love each other more and more. I think Paul, part of Paul's thought here is that if their love as it stands has the effect of bringing him joy, then this prayer that their love would abound is Paul's desire to really unleash the potential of their love so that it impacts not only him, but also all of those around him, everyone in their sphere of influence. Just think about that in the context of where we are now and who we are now. If our love abounds in the way that it does presently, we pray for one another, we serve one another, how much more of an impact can we have on the lives of our brothers and sisters? How much more of an impact can we have in Catonsville if our love were to grow, if our capacity to love were to grow, if our desire to love one another and to love others were to grow, if our desire to see the gospel go forth were to grow? How much more of an impact can we have in this city for the glory of God? I put that before you today. We should not be content with staying where we are. We should be seeking to grow and abound. Paul understands that their love has very real context in this life, but also in the life to come. Another thing that we'll see in this letter is a forward-looking expectation that the believer ought to have in this life. The expectation that all of what we do today will have an effect for eternity. Look at the latter part of verse 10 and verse 11. He says, so that so we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, Paul has a forward-leaning perspective and encourages that whenever he can. We'll get a large dose of it as we continue through this letter. He sort of teases it here for us. This abounding of love that Paul prays for them, knowing God better, gaining wisdom to live in a way that honors Jesus through this knowledge, which enables us to love better, this process will help them to live purely and blamelessly until the day of Christ, until the end when Jesus returns. Their pure and blameless lives will be characterized as such as they are filled with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, the gospel brings forth the righteousness of God, and the righteousness of God bears fruit in our lives. And that righteousness itself is what gives glory to God and will bring glory to God on the last day. One author said it this way, a tree that bears fruit is alive, but a tree that is filled with fruit glorifies the gardener's care. Can you see that? 
A tree that is filled with fruit glorifies the gardener's care. So we should be praying that the church at Catonsville Baptist would be filled with fruit so that it will glorify the gardener's care, the Lord our God. Because that day is coming. The day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead is coming, and he will judge his people as well. I wonder, will we be ready? Will we be abounding in love for God and love for one another, or simply abounding in love for ourselves? There is a warning in chapter 3 of those whose God is their appetite, who glory in their shame, who have their minds set on earthly things. Let that not be said of us. Let us be those who are abounding in love for God and in love for one another so that when Jesus returns, he will see us living purely and blamelessly. That's Paul's prayer for his church. I mean, what more could you ask for when considering how to pray for a good friend? A good friend desires the best for their friend. A good friend pursues the best. The best that we can do in any circumstance is to commit our loved ones to the Lord, to commend them to the grace of God, to seek the Lord that he would work mightily in their lives so that at the end of their lives, God will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the best kind of friend you can have. Someone who's more concerned with your greatest good, which is your relationship to our Savior, than they are concerned with anything else. Those are the kinds of people you should surround yourself with. And again, those are the kinds of people we should be. We should be the kind of friend who is more concerned with the greatest good of others. We are more concerned with their growing faith in the Lord Jesus, their growing love for Jesus and love for others and the expression of love. We're more concerned with that than we are with anything else for our friends. Perhaps you say, my friend is already walking in the truth. And I look around at my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know anyone who's necessarily struggling with their faith. Well, I don't know anyone who couldn't use additional encouragement and strength from the Lord to abound in love and bear fruit. If at any point you don't know what else to pray, just pray that. Pray that God would help them to abound in love and bear fruit. If you don't know what else to pray for me, pray that. Pray that God would help me to abound in love and bear fruit for his glory. Well, again, in this short section in Philippians, we saw Paul's prayer for his friends. He prays and thanks God for the joy of their friendship, and he prays to ask God for the growth of their faith. I would encourage you all to pray that we would be these kinds of friends to one another. Again, pray for our friendships to deepen within this fellowship. Pray that we would be so committed to the gospel ministry that our hearts would be knit together in love for that purpose. Pray that our love would abound more and more to bear fruit so that Jesus Christ would be glorified in the last day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for this time that we've had together to look at your word. We thank you for the reminders of the importance of prayer. More than that, we thank you for the reminder of how you are at work in us. We thank you, God, that you are going to be faithful to complete the good work that you began in us. We thank you, God, for how you show your work in us through others and for the reminder of being a friend to one another, seeking to be a blessing to one another as we gather together daily, weekly.
Father, help us to have that same mind that Paul and the Philippians had with one another, to seek to be a blessing to one another, to seek to encourage one another to love, to pray for one another fervently to love, to seek to remind one another of the importance of the gospel, to partner together with each other in the pursuit of the gospel ministry. Father, I pray indeed that our hearts here at Catonsville Baptist Church would be knit together around that one purpose, that the gospel would go forth. Help our love to abound more and more. Help us to express that love to one another and to others. May you be glorified in this church for your glory and our good in Christ's name.